interesting, occasionally interesting. They are occasionally interesting. I'm curious what your personal and working relationship with plant medicines are. Yeah, did you, yeah. you had an interest in plant medicines prior to working with Native American populations, right? Yeah, so um, I'd say it goes back pretty far, but, but what started to happen was that um, in college, like many people do, I, I experimented and was drawn to, um, to mushrooms in particular. And I found that I didn't like to work with them in a recreational way. Um, I liked to kind of create a safe space with intention for healing and for deep inner, inner inquiry and working on myself. Um, and eventually I started to share that with other people. And in my naive young mind, I had invented this new way of working with, <laughs> um, with this medicine. And now I realize people have been doing this for thousands and thousands of years that it, that it, it's a ceremony. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I was kind of just channeling that this is the way that I like to work with, with medicines. And so I would, I would hold these kind of spaces for some of the people in my life. And I now know that that looks like hold, facilitating a ceremony. Um, so that was really helpful to me to understand some of my um, some of my depression and anxiety and to heal some things from my past. And then eventually I sought out working with ayahuasca, which is an Amazonian plant medicine. And so I worked with that medicine in Peru for my own healing, um, solely for just to explore and to heal my own. Um, my own past, my anxiety, my depression. I had a really deep connection with that particular medicine. And um, oh, a little while after starting to work with it, I got the opportunity to, um, to work at a, a center in Costa Rica called Soltara Healing Center, um, where Tyler and I kind of got in while it was just opening and helped to launch this this new center and so for the past year and change we had been living in Costa Rica working with plant medicines and also um, serving and helping in ceremony for others who are coming to work with the medicine and so it has been quite the journey and um, and I'm realizing I'm taking kind of a really deep look at things that a lot of people don't start thinking about or questioning until they're much older. And so um, kind like of what? a perpetual, uh, perpetual deep dives. Um, yeah, I spend a lot of time questioning the narratives that, that I've accepted as true and seeing where their origins are and um, if that serves me any longer to to hold on to that interpretation of what happened. Um, and so kind of unlearning 
unlearning what I understand to be true about the world. And I'm frequently flexing that muscle and I have found that it's gotten quite flexible. And so you could convince me that anything I believe is totally wrong. Um, Are there any uh, major examples you can speak to? Um, let's see. I can speak for myself while you go for it. it. Um, when I went, uh, down to Peru, um, for, I went with Kendra, um, as guests at another place, um, for our own healing. I know that I went in with the underlying belief that my my current worldview, that of science plus a little bit more, um, was sufficient given enough time to fully understand my universe, the world and my place in it. And I came out knowing that while having a huge paradigm shift and seeing how incredibly inadequate my worldview was (laughs) to be able to understand, you know, some of the things going on just, you know, in other people, in my neighbor, in my classmate, like there's a lot that I was simply blind to. Um, And so the paradigm shift was much more of getting outside of here's a framework that I can interpret with and more how can I continually revisit and reassess the framework that I am looking through. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the the biggest shocks of working with plant medicines is to come to the realization that you can interact with and have a relationship with a plant. And, you know, when I first worked with the medicine, I did not fully believe that that was what was going to happen before I had my first experiences. Um, I, I thought for sure that, you know, this is my brain on a substance. And having had the personal experience of working with specifically ayahuasca, um, just kind of blowing my worldview open to to coming to a place where I know that I am interacting with something that is outside of me. Um, and it's, it's showing me some of the wisdoms of plants. Hmm. That's, I really wanted to ask you, uh, we had listened to a podcast a, a while ago that I believe was talking about somewhere in Peru, but they were looked, they looked at ayahuasca as a teaching plant that they, that the indigenous people, wherever they, they this was about, um, would take ayahuasca and then be told which other plants were edible, which ones could, could help with particular illnesses and, and basically how to use the world around them. And that ayahuasca and the relationship you form with it could could teach you these things. And I was curious about uh, your perspective on that sort of. You were just alluding to it, but yeah. So for me, I definitely can admit that I'm still, you know, I'm still very much a student, still very much a beginner in my relationship with that ayahuasca. But I have been able to work with people who have had 
I'm much more sensitive and um, developed relationship with the medicine. And I, I absolutely believe that, um, you know, the, the healers that we would work with would um, essentially call on their allies to, uh, to work through them to, to facilitate the healing that was happening in ceremony. Um, the way that it has manifested for me, um, I guess the, the most memorable experiences that I've had with, um, with working with the plants is, is having the real felt experience of existing as a plant and some of the lessons that have come through that. So, you know, I don't speak too much in detail about my ceremonies just to be a little protective of those sacred experiences. But, but one of them that comes to mind is, you know, this experience of being fully being a vine. I, I was a vine and I, I could feel my roots reach into the soil and spread in that way. And I could feel my arms and my, my branches climbing on other things. Um, and I just had this expansive awareness of, of my whole self roots and leaves and everything. Um, and I came to a point when I could feel this acute pain in one of my branches and I kind of zoomed into that spot, felt this pain and realized that the branch that had been, it had been cut off and the branch that was cut off was drooping and it was sagging and it was not healthy and that someone had pruned me. Um, and so just this really deep understanding that I needed to lose that branch in order to continue to grow strong and tall from my center, um, just in this incredibly complex um, experience of, of being a plant. And, you know, the punchline of the lesson of, of needing to be pruned came at the very end and so that's kind of what I mean when I say, you know, it, it's clear that it's something outside of me because I'm not planning this whole, uh, this whole experience to teach me something at the, at the end. You know, it, it very much feels like I'm being guided by something that's outside of me. Um, and so it's, I, I consider myself to be pretty reasonable and, and I didn't, I didn't expect to find this, but I, it's it's absolutely my experience, and I've witnessed it in hundreds of other people. And so, you know, it, it brings up a lot of really interesting questions. There are people who even are asking questions about, you know, the research around plant medicines. So could we collaborate with the plants themselves to understand where to go next with the research around plant medicines? You know, could you go into ceremony and ask the questions and whoever does that, how can we trust their interpretation of what the plant medicines told them? And so it's kind of an approach to westernize that. And I don't know exactly how I feel about bringing Western research methodology around ayahuasca and plant medicines, but it's, it brings up really fascinating concepts, um, you know, and so that's kind of one of the big uh, big things of, you know, you think you know the world and then you realize that it's much 
deeper and more intricate and more sentient than you could have ever imagined. Yeah, on a similar note, I would also just like to say that um, I don't think that this is an ayahuasca-specific phenomenon either. Um, I think it's just a matter of how much are you opening up to the world around you. Ayahuasca is a very intense experience and can make you, you know, hypersensitive um, to, you know, whatever is present for you in that moment. But an active practice, whether it's with ayahuasca or if it's other plant medicines or if it's meditation or things like that, <clears throat> taken to, you know, a master level, the same, the same becomes true where you begin to interact with the world around you in a new way um, that it, that <laughs> verbal communication is extremely rudimentary um, and to to be able to listen and trust your gut um, I think is where you get into a larger world. You begin to communicate with not just your human community, but also with your extended biological community. That's pretty, yeah, the implications, the practical implications, I mean, it's pretty, pretty freaking fascinating. <laughs> yeah yeah I think one of the biggest themes that's come out of working with medicine is just this growing belief that plant medicines and fungi medicines um, that they're really an incredible tool for learning how to speak the language of the body again mm. and how mm. to move out of the head um, and into the heart and into the gut. Mm -hmm. And the heart and the gut are largely the nerve endings. Um, they're hugely part of your nervous system. And so you could consider them other brains in a way. Um, and so what plant medicines have fostered within me is a deeper and deeper understanding of how my body is always communicating with me and always um, always processing what's coming up and always um, metabolizing the energy of, of what I'm putting out into the world and what I'm taking in. And it's been really incredible to be able to witness that in, in other people. And sometimes, you know, there are people who have never taken a moment to pull themselves into their body. And they think they might have, but then they do it and they they realize I've never been inside my body before in my in my memory. And it's just so profound to be able to witness that. Yeah, I think a big a big thing about or a big part of why um the world kind of expands when you're able to drop out of the mind and into the body is because 
the information that the body is presenting you is typically in the present moment. There's, there's no filters. Like when you are processing information with the mind, there are so many stories that you're already telling yourself about the input that's coming in and how it's triggering you and your past experiences and all of that comes along with the result that your mind presents you. Your heart and gut are just like, they see it and call it like it is basically because, because they're, they're really just living in the now it's the brain that makes it a story and brings it in the past and sends it into the future. Uh, something that we've been talking about recently is how this all ties into ideas of feminine and masculine energy. And something that I posited to Trevor was that uh, my experience with mushrooms is one of definite or pretty much everything you're saying about plant medicine is my interpretation of feminine energy, getting in touch with your roots and connection and being nurtured and being nurturing and all of that, just just feeling profoundly connected and being coming out as a small part of, of something bigger. Uh, I don't know. I guess is that is that do you, do you ever think about things in these terms? And if so, what do you what do you think about that? I definitely do. um and i can really agree i think um one of the things that i've been exploring in like in exploring the divine feminine which is something that is within all of us regardless of gender um is you know that i've had this picture of it as being passive that's been a way that it's been portrayed to me through media through uh, through culture, etc. Um, but I've been ex- exploring the idea of replacing that passive idea with receptivity. So you're receptive. Mm-hmm. And so in order to accept the intuition, intuition that you have, you have to be receptive to the message. In order to remember your dreams and to have dreams at night, you have to be receptive. And sometimes that is very active. It's not passive. It's an active receptivity. So sometimes when I'm working with my own dream work, you know, I'm doing things that allow me to have a dream. I'm, I'm purposely not checking my phone when I first wake up and trying to journal my dreams in order to increase that receptivity. It's a practice. And I think that it's a similar thing with plant medicines where in a way you have to be receptive to this this communication into the possibilities that are coming up that don't fully make sense, that aren't fully logical experiences. You have to be receptive to them. Um, And I definitely can see, you know, the skills that, that are developed for a lot of people um, when working with medicines tends to be in the realm of the feminine. And I don't know, that is necessarily because that's innate to plant medicines or if that's because the feminine has been, um, has been suppressed within a lot of us, um, has been undervalued in a lot of 
individuals. And so it might be, you know, like we were saying before, that psychedelics and plant medicines, it's difficult to keep up your mask. The truth tends to come forward. And so a more whole version of your existence tends to come up. And so sometimes that involves healing and facing the resistance that you have to receptivity and the resistance to accepting your your feeling intuitive side do you think that resistance gets uh shaped into us by society where does that come from why why are so many people so resistant to that to feeling that getting connected yeah i think um you know uh, um a course that I'm taking right now, uh, it's called Compassionate Inquiry with Gabor Mate. Um, I love we, him. There's a, there's a lot of exploration of the idea of being vulnerable. And the root of the word vulnerable, um, I forget what the root is, but essentially the word itself can be defined as like able to be hurt. Wounded. Able to be wounded. Um, and so... I think in order to be receptive and to move through past trauma or to move through your, your own stories of the world, you have to be in a vulnerable place, which is a place where you are able to be wounded. And so there's a lot of incentive for your body and your mind to resist that. You're going into a place that's painful. Its job is to keep you alive. So it's keeping you from the painful things. And so it's a mindful, intentional decision to sit with the resistance and sit with what's coming up and noticing I'm resisting this and allowing it to be true. And um, it it's really beautiful to watch people navigate that. Um, and it's not easy and it's ugly sometimes. Um, and some of plant medicine work is pretty gritty and um pretty human pretty dirty um so it's kind of a reminder of our humanness and that it's difficult to sterilize it well i'm sold i really want to try it (laughs) (laughs) uh at at the retreat were you using organically acquired ayahuasca like was it actually from the vine was it yeah absolutely um it was ayahuasca vine and chacruna leaf from uh from the amazon region grown there um and yeah i it's a it's a beautiful medicine it's it's definitely really challenging uh it's it's no joke and so it's not for everybody but I do really believe in, in the capacity um, for healing in, in the right settings and in a really safe container. It can, uh, it can bring forward a lot of, a lot of the things that, um, that we're hiding from ourselves. Who would you say it's for and not for? Broadly speaking. Um, yeah, I'd say that, with the answer to this question kind of enters back into the conversation about the feminine where it's 
You know, I think that for a lot of people, myself included, when it's time to work with this medicine, it is a call that you feel from within. It is not, you know, um, that it should be prescribed to someone like, oh, you're showing these symptoms and you've tried these treatments and they haven't worked. Well, you should do this. No, I don't believe that. I believe that it's something um something that's a call. And so when you know it, when you know it, you know it, that it's time to work with this medicine. And so then you start to look and you make the decision. Uh, you find, you find someone to work with that you trust. And I, I believe that once you make that commitment to doing that work, that that's when the process really starts. Um, once you buy the plane ticket or book, book with someone, um, that's when things start to come up for people and when the process starts to reveal itself and it can be challenging for some people. Yeah, sometimes the beginning of the process looks everything, anything from, you know, like noticing old patterns more distinctly to like experiencing physical symptoms that you weren't having beforehand. Um, you the just most- mean the moment someone's made the decision to take ayahuasca they start experiencing differences for for a lot of people um it's it's largely what i've what i've witnessed and what people have reported is that you know they felt something start shifting at that point um and you know you asked about who should not do ayahuasca i would say that any responsible ayahuasca circle facilitators healers uh, they will be doing at least a rudimentary background check of what medications you have been taking uh, of what your health situation is there are certain medications that it's very important to come off of and if you can't do that safely then that medicine is not for you there are certain um, certain physical illnesses and things like that that it's not safe to work with the medicine. So if there's any group that you're planning to work with, if they are not asking for some of that information, then they are probably not people that you want to be working with. And that's kind of the responsible thing to be doing if you're going to facilitate a group. Um, And so I would say, um, yeah, it's, it's important to be feeling that call and to feel ready to, you know, to commit to doing this work and uh, to check through through the facilitators that you're considering working with if it's if it's something that's safe for you to work with. One of the things I was saying to Jen the other day was I'm a little apprehensive of a retreat and a guide like setting. Like I feel like on such a personal type of journey that I'd really want to know and uh, trust the person that I was being guided by, which I feel like would be hard to establish in that type of setting and that type of what I imagine the time frame would be. Yeah, that's a really wise intuition to have. Um, and in this day and age, it's really easy to just Google ayahuasca and to find anybody who's claiming um, that they have the training. Uh, 
in my personal experience, my most of my experience working with ayahuasca is through uh, the Shipibo tradition. And so with, um, with that tradition, um, just making sure that you're working with a maestro who has, um, who has a lineage and a true maestro in the Shipibo tradition has undergone quite a rigorous training. Um, you don't call yourself a maestro unless you have gone through that training. And so it's almost analogous to our medical doctor degree um, where there are certain, um, certain bench points that one has to reach to, to be able to hold ceremony. Um, and yeah, uh, at the place that we were working, you know, we, we were close with the healers that we were working with from Peru in the Shipibo tradition. And, you know, it's amazing how much depth you can reach in, in a matter of days, even when you're working with this medicine. And so I do feel that it's really important to know who you're working with, to know that they're, they're legitimate. Um, it's a really, really powerful medicine. And so, uh, I really believe that if, you know, there are circumstances where people who are not equipped or not trained to hold ceremonies and they're running a real danger of potentially re-traumatizing people um, or, or kind of working in, in ways that they don't fully understand. And so I think that's a really wise, a wise approach of, of you to take. I think um, one of the, or the best way um to make sure that the space is going to be held properly is word of mouth. Um, someone you know and trust who has been there um, and can vouch for the center or um, the maestros. Um, <clears throat> otherwise, um, asking some questions can be helpful. Um, is there any integration support after the retreat, uh, do they know um, where their medicine is coming from and exactly what is in it? That is a really important one. Um, do, are they aware of um, their the tradition that they're working in? Um, are there, you know, what what is the training of the healers? Uh, red flag for me personally is gringo shaman um there are good ones out there but they're they're few and far between um and it also i know for you guys <clears throat> you're very aware of kind of the more sustainability um side of what you do so anyone who is holding ceremony um, and there are no, um, no native healers there, no, no, no indigenous, then there's a certain, um, break in reciprocity that's happening because the wisdom and the knowledge of this medicine is carried by 
a very few people now who, you know, are, they essentially are combating a lot of the same types of, um, like racism and stuff that the native communities in Northern America experience. So it's really important to engage those communities and give back to those communities as well. And one of the best ways that a center or group can do that is by bringing up the experienced maestros. Um, so that's, that's just a big piece for me personally. Yeah, for the maestros that I know, this is their career. It's also a big part of their spirituality and their tradition, but it is a career path. And the amount of work that goes into getting themselves to the point of holding ceremony has been immense. And so for me, I would never uh, want to, you know, move past that and hold my own ceremonies. I would want to create opportunities for those people who who have put that work in and whose whose ancestors have passed the knowledge to them not only that but these are the people who are going to be replanting the ayahuasca that's being harvested and the chacuna and <laughs> have the other remedies and whatnot because ayahuasca at least in the shipibo tradition um is not the end all be all it's the doorway into a whole world of healing um and you know thousands of other plants that that they may call upon either in an energetic sense during the ceremony or in a physical sense in the form of um like plant remedies or things like that um for any physical like idiopathic symptoms that come up during the during a stay And is this legal in Costa Rica? It is a legal gray area. Um, so it is not explicitly illegal. And so they op operate under Roman law, which is that if it's not explicitly illegal, then it is legal. Um, there are other centers that have been working in Costa Rica for over a decade, and um, Costa Rica is largely a tourist economy. And so there has not been legal, uh, legal repercussions as of yet. Um, so it's not necessarily like Peru, where it is in ways protected, um, but it is not explicitly illegal so take that for what it is <laughs> gotcha you mentioned two plants ayahuasca and chacrina <laughs> chacrina what is a uh, chacrina chacrina is uh, it is a leaf it is kind of a shrub it actually grows quite far away from ayahuasca. So there's lots of stories about how, uh, how people knew to mix these two. But Shakrina holds the DMT. That is one of the, um, one of the active, uh, alkalines in, in the brew. And then the ayahuasca is actually an, uh, MAO inhibitor. Um, so, 
DMT typically is not digestible to us. So there are a lot of plants that have DMT. Lemons have DMT in them. Actually, most plants, I think, yeah. have DMT in them. So it's we don't have you know, a DMT trip because we don't break it down into our bloodstream through our digestive system. Don't we also so, just have regular DMT floating around in us? Yeah, you yeah. do. You naturally create it, uh, especially at birth and at death. Um, but the the ayahuasca vine allows us, it inhibits um, the, the enzyme um, that that prevents us from digesting it. So when you drink ayahuasca, you are taking in the DMT from the chacruna through the help of the ayahuasca vine. Um, so it enters your bloodstream and it is um, kind of a, a longer experience than just um, what, what some people might experience by smoking DMT. So the ayahuasca vine doesn't have any psychoactive chemicals? Um, it definitely does. Um, in, I'm not sure where to draw the line with psychoactive. So I do know people who have drank just the vine uh, alone, and it is not, uh, it is not necessarily visionary, but it, you do have an experience. Yeah, I guess that would be psychoactive. I mean, because an MAOI or MAO would be psychoactive. But I guess trippy is really what I mean. You do feel uh, on the just the vine, you will feel a sort of like a unsteadiness on your feet, like a dizziness, kind of like a drunkenness. Um, but it won't be a visionary experience like with the DMT. Um, and the vine, uh, I think also is mostly responsible for a lot of the purgative aspects of ayahuasca, the brew, which for anyone getting ideas about how to have the experience without the purging, don't knock it till you try it because one of one of the reasons that um, ayahuasca can be so incredibly potent in doing personal work is that a lot of experiences, stresses, traumas, that kind of stuff is held in the body. And so the purgative side, which isn't isn't solely vomiting, you know, it can look a lot of different ways, shaking, sweating, yawning, lots and lots of stuff, um, is actually a somatic release. Um, so the healing happens on the body level and not just a mental level intellectually is not enough to fully process a lot of, um, traumas, experiences, etc. That's very interesting. How varied and intense is the purging? <laughs> Completely varied. Yeah. Completely varied. Extremely varied. Depends on the person and what they ate that day and what they're going through and their mindset. And a little bit of it depends on 
what the dosage was. What um, the songs are being sung yeah, that night. What the healers are doing energetically. Um, yeah, it's what it's about, um, completely different for each person, and it's different from from ceremony to ceremony. How how do you measure dosage? I'm assuming that there's a, probably a decent amount of variance between plant to plant. Well, yeah, there's a, a lot of different approaches. The approach that the center that we were at took was to begin everyone with um, with an introductory dose on the first ceremony, which is enough that you you might go into into your journey. Uh, but it's not so much that anyone would necessarily get um, totally blasted off or overwhelmed because we believed that the first ceremony was, uh, it was important to establish some, some safety and establish rapport with the medicine. And so oh, from yeah. there, we would, yeah, from there we would take, um, take input from the person's experience, take input from the healers themselves about, um, whether to increase or decrease dose. But really, sometimes it seemed like dosage was the least important part. What was the most important part? Uh, mindset, openness, readiness for um, for whatever it is that that could be. So, you know, <laughs> receptivity. Receptivity, exactly. Um, so I've, I've seen people have profound healing experiences just by being present in the ceremony space and not consuming any ayahuasca at all. Um, some really profound experiences that I've witnessed. And so, and visions and the whole nine yards. Yeah. Um, it's a receptivity to what's going on and a willingness to be present with, with, whatever is coming up i feel that i feel like i am i'm a champion at contact highs of just whatever (laughs) is going on around me it's so easy to take on an experience but i seem i feel like i'm i'm on a very far end of that spectrum yeah um i know so uh are you supposed to do any type of cleansing or different diet and stuff like that ahead of time? Um, yeah, typically <clears throat> the there will be a period of time before um, and then a period of time after. And the period of time after is much more crucial, um, but the period of time before will make your ceremonies, especially your first ceremonies, a little smoother. And Typically, what are you supposed to eat? Um, it's, it definitely depends on the tradition yeah. you work with and the healers you work with and the center you go to. and uh, Definitely different for a lot of places for where we worked. Um, it was essentially clean eating, a lot of clean eating, um, definitely no pork, uh, moving away from red meats um, and then asking for a period of time with no other substances. So alcohol, marijuana, um, any other substances. And so a part of this is 
um, that the more that is at play in the system uh, when you're working with the medicine, the more complicated and muddy it can get. And so the cleaner that your body can be, it's kind of, you know, less surface work to do to get down into what's what's underlying uh, what's underlying in the body. Do you feel that way with all medicines? Would you do, would, do you take that type of reverence with mushrooms? I'm not combining. Um, I definitely, for me, during the period that I that I'm working with ayahuasca, I do not really work with any other master plants uh, or any plant medicines. And so I do kind of view it as a chapter and almost a a loyalty in a way. Uh, do you feel that same way towards other medicines? Um, I do, but I think that different medicines have different personalities, mm-hmm. as it were. And so I believe that um, each medicine has kind of a different way of of there's a difference in how you might approach it with showing respect or uh, reverence for it. And so for me with, with psilocybin, the diet is not quite as important as maybe some other factors like setting. Um, for me, it's really important when I'm working with psilocybin. And so, yeah, I think there's, if you, if you'll allow that, definition i think there's a different personality for for almost all of the medicines that i have experience with i totally agree do you have opinions on non-plant drugs like lsd or mdma i have some experience with them um i have i don't have a lot of experience with them since uh, gaining, gaining most of my plant medicine experience. And so I would be interested in seeing, um, and seeing what that experience is like now having the knowledge that I know, mm. I do kind of believe that with plant medicines and with fungi, you can have a relationship with it where with, uh, with, chemically created substances you have a relationship to it and there's not necessarily like a a substance spirit that you can connect to in the same way that you can connect to a plant spirit if that makes sense yeah that's totally perfectly makes sense that's my belief in that realm i do think that you know mdma is showing great potential for treatment in ptsd I know a lot of people have used LSD in pursuits of spirituality and consciousness. uh, And I don't believe that they are bad by any means, but I do think that it's kind of fundamentally different Mm -hmm. to have something that is, that has grown with roots or mycelium in the ground and is part of, is part of nature. And I have another question about um, potential, like being, being healthy before, or just in general, a couple years ago when I was in Portland, Tyler told me that I should stop being so healthy, <laughs> essentially, <laughs> but for my health. He, he was uh, saying, you know, that that there is a way to be so extreme with trying to be 
healthy that essentially you're you're not giving your body's defense system a chance to practice being strong and um that's something that's really stuck with me and has influenced me and i think about it with great frequency um and i just would yeah could you could you uh go into a little bit more about why you're saying that and what you believe around that subject uh yeah <clears throat> I, I think you said most of it um but that kind of came from a childhood of you know my mother was very much um valued the the food that we ate and wanting it to be the best and the cleanest and the most organic and etc cetera, etc cetera. um and she never drank alcohol um never partook in any substances never you know this that the other um and it was, it's funny, it's actually, um, tough for me, um, when Kendra and I first got together, you know, and we're living together and starting to make food decisions together. <clears throat> and I'm like much stricter about it than she is. And then she's poking holes in like, why, why this bread and not that bread? And why is it so important to be eating so strictly and healthy all the time? Um, and I remember for the longest time I grew up in like a non dairy household <clears throat> and I had this experience anytime that I did have, um, milk that I would get sores like canker sores in my mouth. Wow. Um, yeah. And then when Kendra and I got together, dairy made a uh, re-entry into my life. And what I found is that it didn't take long for my body to get used to it. And no sores. The sores were gone. Um, and so it wasn't like a lactose intolerance or anything like that. It was simply something different um, that my body wasn't used to. Then <clears throat> about, uh, I don't know, a couple of years later, um, my mom, who struggled with a autoimmune disease for a long time, um, went for a bone marrow transplant, um, which unfortunately was unsuccessful, and she passed away from that. But what really did her in was that her um, liver could not take being on the drugs required um, for all the chemo and um, the blood transfusions and all of that because her body was a temple all the time. Um, and it really kind of made me think, like, what world do I live in? do I live in a world where, you know, the ideal is to be totally healthy because that's all I'm ever going to experience? No, because, you know, the world that I actually live in 
there's microplastics raining out of the air and um, mercury in all our fish and, you know, the list just goes on and on. So, yes, trying to eat healthy is really good, but at the same time, <laughs> it's kind of the stress and the strictness um, of doing that can be can do more damage than, you know, being okay with a little junk food now and then. Um, I've since kind of come to the realization that the sores in my mouth are much more related to stress rather than what I am eating. Um, so I really think it's a mindset thing. Wow. You know, kind of we go back a bit to jitterbug perfume. You know, what are the important things? It's very few things and it's a mindset. And what does a bath do? Relax us. What does sex do? It connects us and releases and um, breathing. It puts us in our body and, <clears throat> makes us present so that's the most important thing um now this is by no means an excuse to eat junk food <laughs> because <laughs> i also just recently watched the documentary what the health and as long as i'm in america um i try my hardest to be vegan um when i go to other places like in costa rica I was much more flexible about that. Hmm. Um, Is that because of the quality of the meat that you find elsewhere or yeah, why? Um, because <clears throat> there's several, several reasons. One is um, the way the meat is handled. Like um, meat in America is very unclean. Um, we, it's, it's a, <laughs> silly misconception that America is very clean and sterile and healthy and safe, um, which I think I had that misconception for a long time. Um, Trevor's giving but, you incredibly skeptical looks. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I mean, in 95% of beef, there's fecal matter. Like, come on. Um, but then there's also like, talking um antibiotics like all of the pharmaceutical content that goes into the animals um as well as the energetics of the animals like something working with plant medicines really made me think about the age-old statement you are what you eat well if i eat an animal that has had a really terrible, terrible life energetically. What am I putting in my body? I'm putting in lots of, you know, a lifetime supply of fear and stress hormones and, um, just, uh, kind of crisis activated genetic material. So why are you more flexible about that when you're outside of the States? 
um, because practices outside of the states are much more humane. Like, I'm not worried about sterilization. That's actually less healthy. Um, but the animals, uh, like, for example, in Costa Rica, it's not tiny cages that everything's in. It's it's farms and it's local. Um, and streets. The chickens are just it, it, running around everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It was specifically that we knew the farm that the chicken was coming from. Mm-hmm. And so we were more flexitarians when we knew where the meat was coming from. And I'm sure that there is meat in Costa Rica that is just as... Um, just as processed as as what we get in America, but it was, um, at least in that setting, it was easier for us to ensure that we were getting really high quality meat because we were working at a healing center that prioritized those things. Totally. Yeah, it's more. It's more. Um, I'm very wary of any type of mass production. If it if it's um, coming from if the production is many small farms, that's one thing. If it's massive farms, then I become very wary. Yeah. I think that's a great rule of thumb. What are your, <laughs> explain your skeptical looks. Well, when you say clean, I assume you're talking about the sterility and, you know, the, the, the FDA compared to Thailand does. I would imagine is probably a much better job of ensuring lack of contamination and than than the the local street vendor here with bags of chicken parts sitting out for twenty four hours. Yeah. <laughs> uh, not necessarily, yeah. you know, the antibiotics, the treatment. You know, if you're if you're incorporating yeah. all that stuff into cleanliness, then yes. I mean, it does a job, and I'm grateful for the job that it does. Sometimes I wish that the job that it did wasn't so influenced by those who have money, Yeah, I guess. I'm thankful for the work that they do. I wish that it was uh, based in some stronger values. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, with that said, you know, there's other countries, other first world countries that don't even accept our meat because of a lot of our farming practices um, because they're so yeah. terrible. And that, you know, so yeah, I, I totally, I, I agree with what you're saying. Um, I was just reading an article today, I think it was today, that was talking about uh, that we're very close to being able to grow our own meat, as in like yeah. in a Petri dish. And like it would take three months to grow the same, you know, like, all, like talking about the diminishing uh, resources that would be required if we could just put some stem cells in a Petri dish and watch it grow. I'm so torn by those ideas. Um, just personally, like, I can't tell which I like worse because it's it leaves the, the life cycle, or it feels like it leaves the life cycle when it becomes something grown in a lab. Totally. And to kind of like relate back to our, our previous conversation, in my gut, it feels kind of wrong. Intellectually, it seems like the perfect solution <laughs> as long as it tastes good. Uh, and I don't, I don't, I mean, I find I generally, when I'm, when I'm 
you know, facing such a, a, a difference, I, I tend to go with my intellectualization of it and say, hey, you know, it solves a lot of problems. Um, I think it does, but there are also simpler solutions to that problem, like plant-based protein, you know, and I think that it kind of... Yeah, but I think there's even, I, I think there's I, even I, larger I, problems to that as well. I mean, plant-based proteins, you still need, you need still need that farmland. You still then, you know, with our current practices are introducing pesticides and herbicides and the labor involved, the price of the meat, the, I mean, the price of the, the protein per protein, you know. There's, there's, there's. I mean, if you took a portion, a small portion of the amount of land that's used for dairy farming and beef farming. Yeah, but if you're not, world, if, if dairy farming or beef farming could be grown in one single factory, you know, you're eliminating a lot. Of the, the calculus behind that equation changes dramatically. Yeah. I guess what I'm saying is that the. Growing meat in a lab reinforces kind of a narrative for me that we have to have meat where, you know, even even in the past, you know, three decades, Americans are consuming a huge amount more meat per meal than they were 30 years ago. And so people use the argument, you know, well, this is how we used to eat. This is how our bodies are meant to eat. But it changes over time. And, and in the past, we didn't eat as much meat. And so, yeah, I guess my belief is that moving to a plant-based protein, or at least making people more comfortable with plant-based proteins, um, can only do good. Like, for example, I have a lot of meat eaters in my family, and they've never been introduced to tempeh. They've not really ever had tofu that tasted like anything but a sponge. You know, they they don't regularly have uh, black bean burgers or things like that. And so as as I'm living as a vegetarian right now and I get to introduce those things to them and they think it's delicious. And so there's a narrative that they have to have meat with every meal in order for it to be complete. And I think... Um, I enjoy trying to break that break that narrative. I mean, I totally support that we should be eating more plant-based food, but I think that I I personally believe that meat is the healthy thing to eat and that if you if you if you took away the environmental impact of the meat industry and the the hum, human how poorly the animals are treated. Like if you remove those two things, then meat is essentially a very, it should be incorporated into our diet, not to the extent that it is. I think that it definitely should be diminished in, in at least in the Western culture. Um, but I, I think it belongs there. I think that if, if there's a solution that's, that is like, you know, we can use less water, less, less, less everything in order to produce, you know, but I agree. I think that we should be still, that it does keep a narrative of too much meat in our diets. That is something that should be addressed. But I feel like that's a separate kind of conversation. Yeah. And, and I agree, you know, if those factors weren't at play, you know, the, the issues with, with factory farming and things like that, um, my decision of whether or not I eat meat would be very different. The manifestation in my life would look very different. But at the moment, I make the choice to to eat mostly plant-based and 
I feel good. I feel healthy. And, and I, I'm happy to be living according to, according to my values at the moment. I think that's very admirable. I think, I think you're right on the money. I wish more people would. I wish it was easier to be able to do that. I mean, I think part of the problem, especially in, in, in the States is, is when you have a fixed income that's pretty low and no grocery stores, let alone quality organic or anything healthy, you know, that's not two bus rides away, but Burger King's right down the street for half the price. It sort of makes it difficult to make those similar decisions. It's true, but Burger King is rolling out the Impossible Burger. I've so, heard. I <laughs> <laughs> I wonder. I'm. I'm. I got to admit, I'm very curious about how how it tastes. I've tried it. How is it? It felt very similar in texture and taste to beef, and I have not eaten beef in a long time, and so it actually almost started to upset my stomach. Um, Just because the psychological correlation you made? The psychological thought of like, is this actually plant-based? Because I know that if I ate a burger made out of beef right now, I'd probably be in the bathroom for a while. Um, And so my body started to react. And so I do definitely think that the Impossible Burger is made for meat eaters Mm. as as an alternative um, cause for me, I'm happy with a black bean burger or something like that. Well, see, um, that's part of my problem with a lot of these meat substitutes is like, I, I, I think that plants can be cooked and, and combined in delicious ways. I don't think we need to call them meat substitutes. I think they just need to be their own thing and their own delicious <laughs> little, you know, yeah. Because you like, call something like a, a burger, and I get it, I'm inevitably going to be disappointed if it's going to be made out of tofu or beans. Is because I'm expecting <laughs> a burger. If I wasn't expecting a burger, a whole different situation. Just call it a patty. Yeah. Bean Anything. patty. <laughs> a delicious bean sandwich. I don't know. <laughs> no, I, I agree. And when I, when I eat vegetarian products that are pretending to be meat, it's kind of it's off like vegetarian chicken nuggets. It's like, um, it's disappointing, you know? Yeah. And I, I think it's <laughs> the wrong way to go. Like, yeah. Uh, it's a shame. Uh, I mean, it should be a lot easier to find high quality, just not meat based dishes, which, and it has been, I mean, it's gotten a lot better. Yeah. I'm, I'm interested to see how things might change with like, the new Amazon Prime grocery mm. shopping sort of sort of trends that are coming on and and when people can order to their home what they consume how does that change and how does that affect people who are out of reach of those things and of course there is a price wall um, to those things and it's not accessible to a lot of the people who who might be affected by the situation you were talking about where, you know, it's two bus rides away to the nearest grocery store Yeah, that carries anything, you know, that's whole. So, and also, I mean, to, to be fair, I mean, I think that it's easy to give the argument that I gave where, Oh, well, you know, 
people in poor re- regions, especially food deserts in the city, don't eat well because it's too hard to. I don't think that's that's the whole story or even most of the story. I think that there's a cultural barrier that exists that's very difficult to overcome. Um, so I don't know, even if you did have the accessibility to those regions, if if the more healthy decisions would be being made anyway. Um, but it'll be curious to see how it evolves. Um, circling back to, so we've talked a lot about how, um, you guys have done a lot of different focus on healing and growth and things like this. I'm curious at this stage in both of your lives, is there something right now that you are working on? Always, (laughs) always and forever. That's, Um, That's a good answer. Yeah. So I mentioned the training that I'm taking with Gabor Mate. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's called Compassionate Inquiry, and it's a year-long training. And the first four months are focused on self-inquiry. And so it's an approach that that essentially, it kind of cuts through the bullshit. Um, It's an approach that really gets to the heart of things pretty quickly. Uh, an approach of inquiring within or inquiring with a client, whether it's therapy or coaching. Um, and so I'm, I'm practicing calling myself out for my, uh, for my interpretations and my perceptions of the world and going really deep into, you know, the, the origins of, of the pain or the vulnerability that I'm feeling. And so that's, quite an undertaking and I'm grateful to be able to have some time to spend to that. Um, that it's, it's really fascinating and Gabor Mate is very much, um, a pioneer, uh, one of the pioneers in talking about trauma as, as a source of, of addictions and the source of a lot of the, uh, a lot of the things that we're searching for ways to treat. And so I feel really lucky to be learning from him. Um, so that's that's on the forefront of what I'm working on. And then any plants that I can get my hands on, any seeds, any soil, I'm, I'm trying to learn as quickly as I can um, just because that's where my heart is pointing me toward. Very nice. Is there anything in particular that you've been surprised to learn about yourself since doing this latest round of uh, self-exploration? Surprise. <laughs> uh, maybe not because I've, I've been looking internally for a while. Um, right now, a concept that I'm playing with is called failure tolerance. Oh, Trevor, come back. You want to hear about, he just ran to get a piece of chocolate. He's going to want to hear this, I think. This yeah. is something we talk about often because uh, Trevor really likes to succeed at everything the first time he tries it. And I try to tell him that, like, that's not the way to do it. <laughs> and he, he does not agree with me. I am in the same boat, Trevor. Uh, my failure tolerance is not incredibly high. Uh, I don't like to do things that I'm not naturally good at. And so when 
for example, Tyler's teaching me how to drive a stick shift, a manual vehicle. And so I know that I can't be naturally good at that because it's a skill. I have to figure it out. I have to learn it. And so for my first few times, I'm not going to excel at it. And I've watched myself internalize that feeling that because I'm not naturally good at it, then it means something. Um, and that's a huge barrier between, you know, not knowing how to do something and being good at something because you have to go through the periods of being <laughs> not okay at it, not good at it in order to, to become good at it. And so I've noticed that I avoid those things. And a lot of it has been subconsciously for a long time of just naturally not gravitating toward things that might mean that I have to make a mistake. Um, but so I'm, I'm looking at it I'm actively looking at it and trying to uh, come up with challenges for myself to, to fail on purpose, to fail magnificently. Um, totally. And yeah, so that's, that's been my exploration lately. Any words, Trevor? I feel like, well, I mean, I kind of believe that <clears throat> this is a, a, a trait that's sort of, you know, to varying degrees built into us for a very reasonable purpose and that you should sort of put your energy where it can be most efficiently used. So therefore we're prone to liking and enjoying the things that we're good at because then we, we, we're going to naturally be more efficient at using our energy to do those things and excelling at those things. Um, I mean, when it becomes a problem is when there's something that you want to do that like intellectually want to do, but you know, or a practical thing like being able to drive stick shift, especially in Costa Rica. Um, I don't know. I like doing things that I'm good at. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like there's a difference between, you know, like I probably, I don't do much. I, I mean, I think in terms of like in the grand scheme of people, even in our society, I'm good at math, but in comparison to myself, I'm not great at math and it's not something that interests me and there's not many things to build upon with whatever, all of the thing, all the directions I've taken my life in. But for things like, you know, I think, a a good example, when I lived in LA, I got a job, one of my first non-film related jobs was I was a professional pumpkin carver at the Los Angeles Haunted Hayride. And I just emailed a whole bunch of haunted houses when I first moved, because I moved to LA at the, in the middle of August. And I had seen on an episode of New Girl that when Jess was unemployed, she got a job at a haunted house. And I was like, that seems like a fun thing. Like I have experience doing makeup for horror movies in college and building like blood bloody props and stuff. So I emailed a bunch of different haunted houses in the area being like, hey, like I am an artist and I can do all of these things. And also like I'm great at pumpkin carving. Meanwhile, I hadn't carved a pumpkin since I was a kid. And then I was just doing the basic whatever jack-o'-lantern thing. I'd never done anything cool, but I had seen pictures on Instagram of cool pumpkins. And, uh, <laughs> They got back to me. I, you know, I had this long list of how I'd be good at uh, doing special effects makeup and all this stuff. And they got back to me only being like, Trevor's getting really angry at what I'm saying. What? 
Because this whole story is a story about how you did something that you were good at. Naturally. No, but it's not. I mean, I'm, I'm saying there's tons of things in the field of, I mean, art is just a really easy thing to point to because you should have seen my first, like, two pumpkins. I was fucking horrible. And, like, costume design. I took uh, costume design in college, and this is basically how Tyler and I met, because then I started really getting into costuming and creating all of these costumes like sewing these things and i kept on doing poorly in this class like i kept on getting b's in every i mean i'm poorly relative again to myself but i was like one of the worst people in the class and i kept on taking these classes that i was not good at in comparison to how good i was at everything else and it was lowering my grade point average and all of this stuff but i was learning so much even though i was not good at it and it's easy to point to these art things well okay well, anyway let me finish my pumpkin story real quick that they were they were like okay yeah show us show us your portfolio of pumpkins and i was like oh shit so i rounded trader joe's down the street and the art supply store and watched a few youtube videos went through like three pumpkins and i was pretty terrible but then by the fourth one i was kind of getting the hang of it and so i sent them a picture of this fourth one that was pretty okay and then started doing started working there they hired me from that one pumpkin and uh then i got awesome at pumpkins over the period of time but i mean like i was pretty terrible to start and then i mean it was a it was a nice learning curve but i just had the confidence that okay it seems like something that like you know could be cool if i know how to do i totally expected to be pretty bad at it while i was getting the hang of how it, it worked together and i would have yeah not been hired for my first few and that's generally how it goes with like every art field and I, I, like in general I have much more of a higher aptitude for anything with art but I'm still failing dramatically when I get started with a new medium it, it looks fucking terrible and I when I became an art minor in college totally randomly I signed up for an intro to painting class in my first semester freshman year I didn't do any art in high school or anything and uh, again, it was fucking terrible for like my first four paintings. And then by the fifth one, something like started to click. And then I was amazing. <laughs> I became an art. But like, I wouldn't have, if I had gotten disheartened, heartened, he's making the worst faces. He is so <laughs> upset at everything I'm saying. He's acting like I'm being ridiculous. Why is this so different from what you're talking about? Because, I mean, it's, it's, it's not different at all. You, you, you did something for a very minimal amount of time and then quickly became an expert at it. That to me does not necessarily mean like... But that could be everything. That could be everything that you're afraid of failing at. I always, I pretty much always fail miserably at something before I get good. Yeah, I get good at things probably a lot faster than the average person, but that's probably because I'm willing to fail dramatically and really pay attention to what's going wrong and how I'm failing and that there's no fear of failure holding me back from trying all I this different I'm shit. I figure out when we started this conversation because I'm trying to like... Bread. Red. So I mean, for me, as someone who is failure resistant, I don't like to fail. I don't know that I would ma have made it past the third pumpkin. In fact, I know that I wouldn't have sent an email claiming to be really great <laughs> at carving pumpkins because I don't want them to call my bluff and I don't want to have to try. So in trying, I would be failing at being great at something I'm claiming. So it's, it is an interesting approach because as someone who's ready to dive in and be bad at something a few times, you know, I am avoiding the situation entirely, which means I'm not sending that email. So I'm not getting that opportunity. Mm. And so, you know, I, I've had really cool opportunities and I jump at the chance and I'm, you know, I'm, I do feel I'm brave, but you know, I'm really, interested in 
sending out an email claiming I'd be good at something that I haven't actually done before, you know, making highly recommend it. It really forces you to get good at something quickly. You got to like learn on the job. And like, if there's, if there, if there is some accountability, then you're gonna, I don't know. It just feels like a totally different type of fire under you to, to get, to, to motivate that being, I mean, like I didn't, I feel like with most of these things, it never occurred to me that if I tried enough and like practiced that I would still be bad at the end of the day. I'm pretty confident that with anything, I'm going to get the hang of it eventually. And I mean, like anything, I feel like anything, regardless of my interest level, even math, if I really, if I, if I had a motivation to be really good at math and like that, I'm so confident that I would be great at it by the end of trying it and even throwing darts if I and I'm spectacularly terrible at throwing darts like magnificently maybe the worst dart thrower in the history of human <laughs> arms but I am totally believe like if I if I committed to that if I got a personal dartboard and maybe even like I, I I am getting a personal trainer and I told him I needed to strengthen all of my dart muscles and uh, you know I might be incredible I might be the best dart thrower in the world like three months from now if I and I I totally believe this about like everything, but I love failing. I love failing horribly. I love making terrible art See, that teaches me how to be good. That's where at I it. think you're like, it's an, it's an absurd thing to say to love failing. I mean, that's just, that's, it's utter nonsense. How? <laughs> utter nonsense. You might as well be a cow. Boom. <laughs> how, how, that was how a, you clearly love failing based on that joke. Was yeah. Point. <laughs> <laughs> See, you're still laughing though, because I didn't fail, and if I did fail, I wouldn't have enjoyed it. How is what I mean? Why? Why are you so convinced I, that your truth has to be my truth? Why would I? Your relationship to failure have to be mine? Like clearly, you see a difference in us. Clearly, you see me go after shit that I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about, and just leap and, and get good on the way I when I fall. Because by definition it doesn't it's not Well maybe maybe I don't I don't believe in failure. I think that's what it comes down well, to and I'm willing to that's a different statement completely though. Like to say that I enjoy failing is is just doesn't make any sense. I enjoy the process of working on something that I start out being bad at and getting good and watching that process and getting to see my... There's a whole difference. There's a huge difference between saying I enjoy failing. So what is failing? And I enjoy getting better at something. Those are are the same exact things. That's what I'm saying. That's what failure is. If you repeat failure... You're deriving enjoyment out of way different processes there. It's just total. It's just perspective and doing the same exact thing. Kendra, are you on my side here? Don't, I think that that exact that perspective way. is maybe the the defining difference between the people who are failure tolerant and those of us who are not. Like, for me, I don't necessarily see those things as the same exact thing. I know that they are logically, but it, it's not my perspective, you know? The way that I actually live my life out, it's like everything's a potential failure. Um and it's a little bit dramatic to say it that way. I don't, obviously I'm trying things. I'm, I'm, it's not stopping me from living my life. Um, but I love the confidence that you approach things with, because I know too, if I really look at it, if I spent a month trying to develop a skill, I'm clever. I'll figure it out, but I don't necessarily approach situations 
with that confidence in mind and with that confidence, you know, at the forefront of trying, reaching out for an opportunity that's totally random, you know? I think that confidence is totally a muscle that you strengthen by practice. All I'm saying is if somebody says, I love failing, I stop listening because it's utter nonsense. Well, I'm going to practice claiming I'm good at things that I'm not good at by sending an email to occasionallyinteresting at gmail.com full of a list of things that I can definitely do and am an expert at. And then we'll hire you to do them. Portfolio. (laughs) Sounds like a great plan. (laughs) All of our listeners are encouraged to do this as well. (laughs) What's the most unrealistic thing you believe in? I don't even know what realistic is anymore. (laughs) That's fair. Hmm. I shared some pretty out there beliefs already. Um, I believe in fairies. Holler. <laughs> I'm a little gnome friend. So does the president of Iceland. So I've read that. <laughs> Sounds like my kind of place. Yeah. I like to go to Iceland. Isn't isn't. Wait, is Trump buying Greenland or Iceland? I think it was Greenland. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, for me, psilocybin is very much fairyland. I get these like pretty intense storylines that are always somehow fairy-derived in their origins. Mm. Um, I think psilocybin was one of the medicines floating around Europe. So it's probably in all of our ancestry somewhere. Yeah, tell them about Christmas. Oh, there's, there's a great YouTube video on the origins of Santa and it's and reindeer. Yeah, to um, the 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 red and white. Um, oh yeah, is this about Amanitas muscaria. Yes, yes. I've never known how to pronounce that. Thank you. <laughs> read it a bunch and I was like oh, my <laughs> um, yeah and that, that is, so it's it's toxic and that they would to humans drink the, the reindeer would seek this mushroom out and this 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 is true from what I understand that they would they would they can smell it from like miles away and herds deer away. of all kind seek yeah. out psilocybin mushrooms and they'll come and they'll, they'll, they'll stampede to the where these mushrooms are growing and root up the tundra and, and eat these mushrooms that are growing or something like that. and then and then the someone figured out and my question is how do they do it uh, that if they drink the urine from these reindeer that the toxins will have been filtered out and they'll be left with the psychoactive chemical and be able to trip and this is where santa came from on his flying reindeer and red and white color scheme yeah i've heard something similar um yeah, how how that knowledge was come about, I can only guess that it's something similar to how ayahuasca and chacruna work. They figured out how to combine those. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but how do you how do you how does the reindeer cooperate? Like a reindeer tripping balls off, like is not going to be like okay with some dude just being like, no, 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 it's it's cool. I'm just just 
can take this cup for a second and place it. <laughs> yeah. I don't want no problems. <laughs> well, I see some holes in the story, but it's amusing either way. Yeah, I'm sure it's just been a game of telephone so that the story that we've got is extremely um, abridged. Yes. Yes. Um, Jesus was a mushroom. <laughs> There's a bunch of uh, religion creation stories surrounded. I mean, that. have you heard of the stoned ape hypothesis? That That is what brought around like present day consciousness. Uh, yep. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's pretty fascinating. That it's been a parallel path of evolution and developing consciousness and prefrontal lobes and I certainly I can understand it. I'm I I'm, I wish we could do more research. We're getting there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you guys read Michael Pollan's How to Change Your Mind? I have read some of it. First few pages. <laughs> cool. Uh, and also followed pretty closely this circuit when he was doing interviews about it. Um, it definitely caused kind of a spark in sudden interest in, um, in psychedelic therapies in plant medicines in a population that maybe wasn't already fascinated by those things. Uh, so kind of legitimized it for certain people um which is interesting it has its its positives and negatives i think but i think that he did a a nice job of being a spokesperson he is very um pretty respectful i believe and and um presented the information in a way that takes a little bit of the woo-woo out of it and so makes it a little bit more approachable to the everyday person. Totally. Totally. If there was one behavior or action you could get everyone in the world to do or stop doing, what would it be? Hmm. Reacting. <laughs> what should they be doing instead? Acting. Acting. Responding. Could you, Could what is you... the difference between reacting and responding? I think reaction comes from a subconscious place, um, a place that the whatever is said or done from a reactive place is a place that's done out of fear or out of pain um, and tends to be damaging and continue the cycle of hurt people hurting people. When you can respond, um, it's it's from a place, uh, a much more like centered and intentional place. Maybe this is if you read Wait But Why, I think that you're talking about the primitive mind versus the higher mind. You'll see what I mean soon. <laughs> <laughs> what is the most annoying thing about people? Um, for me, and I think this is a real disorder that some people are diagnosed with, but, um, it's really 
weird to watch people eat food if you really look at them. <laughs> and I think part of this has been born out of um, more recent experimenting with fasting and being around people who are eating while you're not eating. Mm. And yeah, people just kind of become animals when they're eating <laughs> in a way. We are animals already, but yeah, I, I kind of get annoyed by the way that people eat. I love, make, I love cooking for people and feeding them. It's just the chewing and the noises that they make. This that is, yeah, misophonia is the name of the <laughs> disorder. That's like a very real uh, diagnosable thing. I think you can even, I think it's on like the genetic 23andMe test can tell if you have the marker for it. So it's, Interesting. Yeah. yeah. One of my favorite podcasts talks about it a lot. When we first got to Thailand, we read Eat, Pray, Love. And at one point she talks about uh, when she was at some Buddhist monastery, one of the things that they, they had to take their time when they eat ate anything and appreciate each mouthful for, you know, and I, I don't know why that stuck with me. I've thought about it pretty consistently since that and like why that would be something and then noticing my own eating habits of tending to like wait until I'm really hungry to eat and then t turn into an animal and be like, there's food here it's eating time and that I haven't been successfully able to change that yet but it's something that's been on my mind that's interesting you bring that up how about you one Tyler thing, oh sorry go ahead one thing that I've definitely noticed is the difference in people when they are eating and like on their phones and scrolling or if they're eating in a social environment, like if you can zone out, then your behaviors become way different than if you are like present with people mm. in a social setting. So, you become more animalistic when you have something to like a phone. Oh, yeah. to do. There's yeah, there was a book sometime in the last five years about, like why French people don't get fat, even though, you know, they're all they're eating is like white flour and butter and sugar and stuff. But it's all because it's this uh, social environment that there's such a uh, community and like it's you, you don't have TV dinners, you don't have sitting down, you don't have zoning out. I mean, France is such a culture of eating means to be with each other and even if you're alone that it's all you know sidewalk cafes and stuff and you're sitting there people watching or talking to your neighbor at the next table and i totally totally that all being said i do enjoy sometimes having a zone out eating session <laughs> but yeah. i think as a as a general practice i i prefer conscious and uh social eating and then sometimes when i'm tired i like watching tv and stuffing my face full of carbohydrates don't we all <laughs> so yeah tyler what's the most annoying thing about people um probably evangelizing Ooh. when you have an idea about something you know an opinion about something um and they just feel like everyone else should hmm. do it or think that way or it's going to change everyone's life to have this piece of information that they have. Um, except in the case of jitterbug perfume, right? Cause like that was <laughs> worth evangelizing. Well, true. I mean, sometimes people really do have something, but 
that doesn't make it easier to listen to the evangelizing. Yeah. <laughs> Even if it is worthwhile information that will change everybody's lives. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that seems to not work very often. You could you could scream a truth into somebody's face unless they want to hear it. It's not going to do any good. Yeah. Or as Trevor famously says when I've asked him what's the best way to change people's minds, he said, through art. Except then you recently tell me you're quoting someone else. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. You'll never reveal your secrets. No. Fair <laughs> um, yeah, I think that it sort of circumvents people's defense mechanism if it's an art form. I mean, yeah, when when people look at art, they're already primed to be in a place of receptivity. To yeah. take it back in. That's my favorite question. Okay, go ahead. What is something that is really popular now, but in five years, everyone will look back on and be embarrassed by? What's your favorite? I, I like hearing the diversity. When people give a good answer, yeah. I find it. <laughs> no pressure. Yeah. Like, I didn't know that people have pointed nails now. This doesn't have to be that kind of trend, though. It can be, you know. Anything. anything. What are the kids doing these days? I don't even know what's popular now. Um. (laughs) It can be, like, a niche thing, too. Like, it doesn't have to be, like, everyone's doing it. Like, you know, you notice it in certain groups. Or it can be, like, everyone's going to look back and be embarrassed that we weren't that all the mushrooms weren't legal everywhere. That's pretty embarrassing. Yeah. I'm embarrassed. Yeah. Yes. Which does look to be the case. Didn't Oregon recently legalize it? Like recreational decriminalized? No, it was half ass attempts. Yeah, it's on the ballot. Yeah, it's on the ballot. Oh, was Colorado decriminalized? Denver did. Just Denver? Oh. Yeah. Let's see, that almost annoys me more than like I mean not not really but because then because what's going to happen is going to be like look we decriminalized it and and nothing good came from it well like yeah because you couldn't tax it you couldn't regulate it like you didn't do anything other than not screw over a small handful of people as much as you could have I don't know <laughs> I have an answer to your okay. to your question uh, what's popular now that that in the future we'll look back. Uh, gender reveal parties for babies. Oh, yes. Yeah, interesting. Where, well, because there's know, not going to be a gender you ex- anymore. You explode balloons that are pink or blue. And this is actually a pretty recent trend. Somebody started it and then everybody started doing it. Um, but I think it's kind of silly. Yeah. Um, and I think that as gender and people start to understand that gender is fluid and that there are people who are born intersex and you know, there's a lot of variation in people's bodies and their genders and things like that. I think that it's going to become something that is silly and is a remnant of the past. They are, they are very silly parties. (laughs) I've been to them. I had my pink cake, <laughs> but I will not choose to have one. That's what I'm saying. Uh, what is your favorite thing about yourself? Mm. 
probably that I have learned how to change. Good one. Mm -hmm. I like that. Um, I think my favorite part about myself is that there is a childlike, playful goofball that's still alive in me to the point where when I play with my four-year-old niece, she tells me I'm a liar when I say that I'm a, an adult. So <laughs> my goal is to stay in that realm where the kids think I'm not quite, uh, not quite an adult and the adults think I'm not quite a kid and I can just float in between those worlds. <laughs> That's a beautiful goal. <laughs> what is your most embarrassing story from childhood? <laughs> Mine's kind of gross. <laughs> Good, the best one. Um, so I was being potty trained. <laughs> And whenever I would poop in the potty, people would cheer and clap and give me lots of really positive feedback. And so there was a time when I pooped in the potty and there was no one around to give me praise. So I picked up the turd out of the potty and I took it into the living room where everyone was sitting and I presented it to show them that I pooped in the potty. And they were all really grossed out, and I couldn't understand why they weren't cheering for me. Aww. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. It's positive reinforcement. <laughs> How about you, Tyler? Well, I definitely can't top that. Um, this is always a hard question for me. I, I block out a lot of my embarrassing stories, I think. <laughs> Perhaps there's some... Uh, always a hard question for you? How often do you get asked this question? Maybe I just notice it so much more when I am asked. Um, but I definitely remember being pretty embarrassed. Um, so when I was in, um, like middle school... I had I went through the anime phase, and you like Totoro, uh, right? I do like Totoro. Oh yeah, okay. I thought you yeah. were my people. Uh, I just wanted to double check. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Miyazaki's work I love, but anime in general, I'm pretty turned off by it these days. Um, but back then, I thought it was the coolest thing, and all the characters. You know, they have weird, like, markings on their face or on their arm or, you know, various, I don't know, energetic scars. or I don't know how they all get these cool markings. But I wanted some for myself. <laughs> and so I had a persona that um, I had created that was my character. Um, and I drew some of those markings on my arm in Sharpie and then uh, at the time I was taking martial arts and um, I was a higher one of the higher belts 
Um, and so in that class, I was like the, the younger and, um, less advanced students kind of like were supposed to look up to me and part of respect for the tradition is respect for the belt and the uniform and everything. And while I'm doing my forms and getting all sweaty, this marker is starting to rub off all over the inside of my uniform and the sleeve and the outer cuff of the uniform. And <laughs> enough that it was obvious that the instructor is like, what is that? And then I have to show these large stripes painted on my arm and explain myself. That seems totally reasonable. What I feel was the reaction that you received? Um, probably, like, it wasn't a dramatic reaction. I think it was a quiet disappointment. Aww. <laughs> really destructive kind. <laughs> I feel like lots of kids draw, you know, tattoos on their arms and stuff like that. Seems very reasonable. I feel like I'd be like, respect, son. Especially in martial arts. we're all t- <laughs> It's all from Eastern culture, and you're just honoring... You know, Japan. Yeah. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm really into this. Yeah. I mean, looking back on it, yeah, all kids do that. I was a kid, but at the time, I felt like I was being held to a standard where that was uh, not cool. I understand. <laughs> uh, what is the book that has most influenced your life? For me, um, The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz. It's only like 100 pages and pretty small and kind of simple, but I have reread it and I have purchased it maybe like eight or nine times because I keep giving away my copies of it. And it's essentially four agreements that you make with yourself based on Toltec wisdom um, that can significantly change your life, changed my life. And so it is kind of in the self-help spirituality realm, but it's made a huge impact for me. Very nice. Um, For me, it's hard to say. It's definitely something in the fiction fantasy realm. Um, Have you read the Abhorsen trilogy? The what trilogy? Abhorsen. No, I haven't. We read it, or Trevor liked it from childhood, but I read it about a year ago, and it definitely made me think of you a lot. I feel like, yeah, you should read it. <laughs> okay. Like it. Yeah, I'll take a look. Um. When I was growing up, Harry Potter was a big thing, so that was a big part of my life. But I don't know. And gives you a peace sign. Yours people, yeah. That is that's my answer for this question: is Harry Potter's because it was formative my childhood, made me love reading, which then shaped the rest of my life. Mm. Yeah, I I 
can't pinpoint exactly what it did for me, but I know that I read it and then I had the audio versions on cassette that I would listen to a lot. So it must have influenced me. <laughs> same, same. Definitely Tolkien was a big influence and more recently um, The Quantum Thief um, which is more of a sci-fi and a little difficult to follow but the most beautifully expansive and realistic depiction I've seen of a future integrated with like physical and cyber um that i've ever seen mm. so, so that so definitely that's on our list huh yeah i like the sound of that yeah so. it's, a, it's a trilogy um but definitely worth the book even better yeah we like trilogies we like <laughs> we like anything where it's not a one-off we can keep on going and getting to know <laughs> this world the characters yeah what life practices do you do to keep yourself sane and balanced? Hmm. Sometimes I do yoga and I meditate. Sometimes I smudge my space with smoke from plants that I consider to be medicine or sacred. I cook. Cooking is one of my favorite things to do to keep myself sane. Um, and I like to sing. keeps my voice free and you can kind of tell how happy I am based on how much I've been singing. So those Same are kind same. of, those are my, my pillars. You have a beautiful speaking voice. I just want to listen to you narrate books. I could listen to your voice forever. Oh, yeah. Maybe I'll bring my ukulele to Thailand and serenade you. Oh, please. We would love that. How about you, Tyler? What life practices stay in balance? Yeah, I think the two most important ones for me are... Um, I developed a really close relationship with uh, master plant tobacco um, when I was working with ayahuasca. It's different than North American tobacco. Trevor's um, <laughs> so, getting really excited. He quit smoking a month ago. Uh, but I think you're probably talking about something a little different. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, and so once in a while, especially if I've been, you know, out and about um, in situations with people who unsettle me or, you know, like throw me off a bit or that kind of thing. Um, it can, or, or if I have some, some personal work that's coming up um, that can really help to center me or clean that off. Mm -hmm. And also spending like half a day to a day, um, just alone with my creative works, not like really getting distance from people. Um, that's those two things really help me. More questions about this tobacco? <laughs> <laughs> it certainly is interesting. <laughs> 
It's used it. much more like smudging. Like, like it's not inhaled or anything like that. An intention is put into it, and then the smoke is blown usually like on yourself or out intentionally. I feel like I like the inhaling part, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that part, not so much. <laughs> That's interesting. I can see, I can see how, I mean, from the effects of it, that it would be good at the things that you described using it for. Well, the this tobacco um, is a different species, so inhaling it would be very intense. Its nicotine content is much, much higher than North American tobacco. You're just selling uh, him on this more. He's getting oh, like, more, more excited. Perfect. <laughs> is this the same stuff that they use for uh, rape? Rape's nicotine? Oh, yeah. Did you use rape at Salterra? No, hape is not part of the Shupibo tradition. Um, that's more of a Brazilian, I think. Uh, have you ever that's, had it? Uh, I've worked with it only twice, so I am not comfortable really commenting on hape. I, we, I was, I was sneak attacked. I was. I was <laughs> Rapid against my will, and I was. <laughs> it was very uh, shocking. That's not cool. <laughs> it was not cool. It was incredibly over overwhelming and just yeah the yeah opposite of you know obviously the opposite of set and setting. If you have no idea what's about to happen to you, and then that was really very painful and then disorienting. I really dislike hearing when people partake in something that nobody told them, like how strong it is or what it is or where it's from. Like one of my friends was asked at a party, hey, do you like mushrooms on your pizza? Oh. And she said yes, because no. she liked mushrooms on her pizza. And they gave it to her and it wasn't overtly clear. And so I ended up having her first and only surprise attack mushroom experience. And so for me, that's, you know, that's a pretty serious offense. It's like very much non-consensual. Totally. Terrible. What is the most environmentally friendly thing you do and or the main environmentally friendly thing you want others to do? Um... For me, I try not to buy pretty much anything new. If I can get it used, I will. Nice. Um, and I'm I'm very much a minimalist, and so I don't really need a whole lot. Um, so I think I'm kind of opting out of like a consumerism that seems to be really rampant. Um, and then another. Another thing is just I grew up in rural Pennsylvania where my family, you know, had gardens and they canned their excess food and make things from scratch. And so even just little things um, that I try to do, like we recently started making our own rice milk um, and just kind of just trying to make things, trying to repair things, trying to 
cut out the middleman or the the outsourcing uh, and I think just that mentality or that approach to the world if it were widely practiced in it and it certainly is in some some regions but that approach would be really impactful I agree very strongly that's awesome I think we already kind of touched on, I think one of the biggest things that I do um, that I feel is environmentally friendly is um, being a vegetarian, but that's not something that I feel like everyone should do. Um, Kendra said the other thing I was going to say, which is repair it. Like I, I very much like to try and fix stuff. If I see something broken, I'm like, ooh, how can I fix it or make it work or turn it into something else? Um, And cutting out plastic as much as possible. Yay. Yeah, man, one of my all-time very favorite phrases in the world is use it up, wear it out, make it do or do without. (laughs) Will you say that one again? Use it up, wear it out, make it do or do without. As originally uh, was for, from it was like World War Two focused at home of being of like there was a lot of it, there was victory gardens and 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 yeah all of these things really promoting sustainability and uh, doing things for yourself and and not wasting resources because we were sending as many of our resources as we could overseas. And uh, so, yeah, there became a real culture of taking pride in use it up, wear it out, make it do or do without. I wrote it down. I'm going to spread it. Nice. All right. Final question. Why do people do small talk? Depends on the situation. I believe that people do small talk because we are innately social creatures and interconnected and we are seeking connection to other people. And maybe through learning through our culture or through filters and and the desire to remain not vulnerable we keep it safe and we keep it light and we keep it on the surface but that underneath it is the genuine desire for connection that's beautiful so how's the weather over there (laughs) pretty nice lately we love rainy season. Yeah. And it rains for about an hour tops once a day. It's cool. It stays usually around low 80s. We're pretty, I mean, I feel like it's a different, it doesn't count as small talk. If you're talking to somebody in Pennsylvania to Thailand, there's a genuine interest in how different is your weather than what I'm experiencing as opposed to two uh, people coming in from the same. <laughs> Especially if two of those people are considering visiting Thailand. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, when you come, it'll be, it'll be, it's what's, it's the most popular time of year to come because where we live, it gets really cool at night. I mean, like. 
50, around 50 degrees at night, and uh, it's still pretty warm in the day, but not super hot. I think it usually gets to the high 70s, uh, so that's considered the best time of year, and it doesn't rain much, maybe once every other week for a little bit in January and February, and or I guess by February, it pretty much has stopped raining entirely. Uh, so yeah, it's just, it's just sunny and like warm all the time. <laughs> nice. I'm sold. Good. We look forward to having you. Very much so. Any, any, any further questions, dear? Where are we going to go to eat? I'm starving. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Do you guys have any questions? Any other topics you'd like to broach or things that you would like to recommend our listeners to go do or read or listen to or anything? You don't have to. <laughs> no. Um, well, at the moment, neither of us have websites or ways to to promote our own creative work, but um, I appreciate the platform and I especially appreciate uh, you guys for taking time to connect with us today. We appreciate you taking time to connect with us. <laughs> yes, we've been wanting to do this forever. Yes, you, you've been our very time. hardest guest to get a hold of. So this is <laughs> so exciting to finally do this. And it was it was worth the wait. It was it was really wonderful talking to you guys and getting to hear your insights and stories. And yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. See you guys soon. See you soon. Bye.